Today on The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. How do we get in His presence? Total submission. How does that happen? We get rid of some idols. Then we have to go to the mercy seat because you and I then become holy because Jesus, who was holy, has shed the blood and protects us. And He is there as our mediator between us and the covenant that every one of us has broken. The truth is you can expect consistency from God. Welcome to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Today, Dr. Young shares his message, The Presence of God, and shares from the story of Samuel to show you why you can trust in the power of God's presence. So stay right there. The Winning Walk is coming right up. Here's Dr. Ed Young with today's message, The Presence of God. Everybody here would like to have the power of God at your disposal, in your repertoire. We need the power of God to help us in our business, help us in our vocation, health challenges we might have. In any area of our life, all of us would love to have power. It's all about power. We want power to do this, power to do that, permission to do this. All we need is power, 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 more power, and the ark represented power. Even the power of Almighty God. Think about it. To have that kind of supernatural power Real power, immeasurable power, the power that would come from the ark. In the Bible, power was always connected with something or some event. We go back to Abraham, and we see there it was a smoking pot and a burning torch. Power was there. We go back to Moses. He saw a bush that was burning. He saw it was a holy place. In that bush, he saw power, even the power of Almighty God. Jacob saw power in a wrestler in which he grappled with all night long. Job saw power in a hurricane, in a wind, in a tornado. But in these illustrations of power, they're all the way through the Bible. The power would work there with the bush but it didn't stay with the bush. The power worked in a tornado. It wasn't always in a tornado. But the one thing in the Bible that power was manifested, it would come and it would go, but it would go back to the ark, the ark of the covenant. You read 1 Samuel 4, 6, 7, and you see there about the ark. What was the ark? Let me remind you, the ark was a, a box that was four feet long and two and a half feet by two and a half feet. Uh, Steven Spielberg made it way too large in the movie, incidentally, but we won't be too particular. 
On the top of the box, acacia wood covered in gold, two cherubim, two angels facing one another. In the middle was the mercy seat, a block of gold. Inside the ark, what do you have? Aaron's rod that budded, a little sample in a box of manna, and you have primarily the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments was the covenant that God had made with Israel. And therefore, you have in this place the Shekinah. You have the glory of God. It would come and go with the ark, and the ark represented power, God's power, divine power. We know how it was used. It was used there when they came to the Jordan, and it was strong, strong, and deep, and they took the ark out of the Jordan, and the Jordan River parted as had before the sea. They got to Jericho. They had those high walls around. They had no way to get in. They took the ark and marched it around the walls, and out of the walls came tumbling down. This was known to people all through that area, the ark of God. The, the Yahweh, and the Jews believed for a while that God was in the box, in the ark, and then they come, came to believe that God was actually the box itself. And so we see the history of the ark, and we bring it into play in these fabulous chapters that teach us about the very power of God himself. So look at it beginning in chapter number four. 1 Samuel, thus the word of Samuel came to Israel. Now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped beside Ebenezer while the Philistines camped at Aphek. Now we see how Israel presumed the power of God. Did you get that? We're going to see as we study this chapter how Israel had the ark and therefore, they presumed because they were God's chosen people, God's peculiar people, God's anointed people, God's called out people, that they possessed the very power of God. And they went out to battle. And they presumed on God. Let me show you something you might be interested in. The Sunday prior to 9-11 in our worship services... By the way, you know how we count people in our church. When you see numbers, they're not guesstimations. We take a picture of everybody and count every head. So it's very, very accurate. So the Sunday before 9-11, we had in our 18 worship service, I don't know how many we had then, we had 17,495 people. The next week after 9-11, we had 36,229 people. We had 6,479 in a prayer meeting service following 9-11. Well, what in the world happened? All the CEO Christians showed up. <laughs> Christmas, Easter only. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, we in America recognized where we had all of our power in those twin towers. There were no buildings on the face of the earth that had more of the leaders in the economic world than in those twin towers, and they came down. Had the radical Muslim been success, they would destroy the Pentagon, where the military power of the world primarily was found. They destroyed only part of it. 
and had the other plane out, the White House would have been level because that's where the most powerful individual in the world would be. So we saw in 9-11 how in, whew, in just a few hours, all the power structures that we would have as human beings would be gone. That which we count on as Americans, and therefore flags were everywhere. Prayer meetings were everywhere, and worship services were packed to overflowing because somehow we were trying, though we'd assume the power on God, one nation under God, really? And suddenly one nation under God, it seemed that all of our foundational secular things were at risk. We turned to God seeking for power. We thought that we had appropriated God, as had the Jews. Read what happened to them here in our scripture. It says the Philistines drew up to battle array to meet Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 on the battlefield. When the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, now follow this. Why has the Lord not the Philistines. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? You see, they knew the Philistines could not feed them because they had apprehended God's power. They were God's peculiar people, God's blessed, God's chosen people. And they said, the Lord must have led to our defeat. Why is that? So they went out into the second battle, but before they went in our second battle, look what they did. They said, let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant. Oh, they're going to bring the Ark into the battle. That it may come along us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. The Ark of God would be powerful, more powerful than enemies of Israel. So the people went to Shiloh. And by the way, I was there this year. And from there, they arrived, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to the host who sits above the cherubim and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. In the Ark, you have these two little rings where you can carry it in. And who was carrying the Ark? Hophni and Phinehas. Who were they? They were the immoral, slimy, creepy, sexual predators who were priests, priests in the temple, the sons of Eli. Ladies and gentlemen, when a worshiping body allows immorality to rule and reign, known in the public circle of God's people, and the people do not rise up against that, let me tell you what is going on. It means the people themselves are satisfied with the immorality that passes itself long in the form of religion. Now, Hophni and Phinehas bring the ark in. What happened? Now the ark is there. The power of God is there. Look what happened. And so the Philistines, verse 10, fought Israel, was defeated, and every man fled to his tent. And the slaughter was very great, for there fell Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Look what happened. And the ark of God was taken. The Philistines have the ark. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died in battle. What was wrong? Why did they lose? Because there was immorality in the land. You say, boy, it's unusual for them to lose. No. If you've been reading through the Bible, there has been 200 years in the book of Judges 
when God's people were immoral and disobedient to the covenant of God, the contract he had made with them there at the foot of Sinai, and therefore they lost, and the whole nation was going downhill rapidly. And then the end of this chapter, we have an interesting thing. Phineas, one of the immoral priests who was killed, his wife was pregnant, and before she delivered a child, she discovered that Eli had died, hearing the news that his sons were killed, hearing the news that the ark had been taken, and Eli fell over backward from the gate and broke his neck, a godly prophet. But Phineas, his wife, bore a child, but before she bore the child, she said, name that boy Ichabod, which means the glory of God has departed from Israel. That's what we thought after 9-11. You know, God has left our country. We're being judged because of our godliness. And that's what she felt. Name this boy Ichabod because the glory has left this land. You see, what did the Israelites do? They presumed on the power of God. They said, we've got the ark. We've got the power. Now the ark has been stolen. It's in the hands of godless pagans. Whoa. Look at the next thing we learn about power. It's found is how the Philistines handled it. Look at chapter five. By the way, we see the Philistines co-opted the power of God. What does that mean? They took the ark and they added, added it in their temple of worship to their other God, their primary God, Gargon. And Gargon, they put the ark right by, down by Gargon, and look what happened there in their temple. Now the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And the Philistines took the ark of God and, and thought it to be in, and brought it in the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. Listen to this. And when the Ashdodites arose early next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set him in place. When they arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen to his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off. Only thing was left was the trunk of Dagon. What happened? I'm sure the first time Dagon, there was the ark, and Dagon fell down in the night on his face, and they must have went in and said, you know, some of those mischievous teenage Philistine boys have pushed over our God in this holy temple, and they picked him up and put him back. We're going to find out who did this. But the next day they went down, Dagon had fallen his face, and his head had been severed. No wisdom. His arms were cut off. No power. And that tells us not only was the God in the ark, the God of Israel, more powerful than Dagon, but we know that the God represented by the ark in Israel was actually the only true God because Dagon had no wisdom and had no power. Was nothing, was pagan. And then we've got a problem. Here's the ark. Philistines have possessed the ark. What's going to happen when godless people try to handle God and godly things? We see in verse 6, Now the hand of the Lord was heavy, 
By the word, the he word heavy there is kabod. It is the glory, the hand of God, the glory of God, the presence of God was heavy on these people. And it says, and they smote them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territories. Now, godless people were trying to handle the ark, the things of God. And it says in your translation, tumors. They were smitten with tumors. Another translation said all of them got hemorrhoids. True. In the, in the Hebrew, they all had hemorrhoids. A better translation would be the plague came. And they began to kill people and they were suffering because they had what they perceived and what was the literal power of God. And they knew it came this judgment on them because of how they had handled the ark and they had seen that their pagan God was powerless before him. They said, what are we gonna do with the ark? They said, okay, we'll pass the ark on. Look at verse eight, they sent it to Gath, another one of the Philistine cities. What happened at Gath? The judgment came just like it did. They were stricken with bubonic plague. Judgment came on them. The children of Gath said, we don't want this thing. This is what we're going to do with it. So they sent it to another Philistine city, Ekron. See, see verse 10? And those Ekron, they said, we don't want the ark. And the judgment came on them. Until finally they had a meeting of the Philistines. This is so interesting. Chapter 6. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners saying, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we shall send it to its place. Send it back home. And they said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but you shall surely return it with a guilt offering. Now pagans feel guilty about how they're handling the things of God. Isn't that something? So they make some gold and silver and they get a card and look what happens. I love this story. Verse 7, chapter 6, 1 Sam. Now, therefore, take and prepare a new cart and two milch. That means, that means cows that have recently calved. They're milking cows on which there has never been a yoke and hitch the cows to the cart and take their calves, listen to this, back home, away from them. Take the ark of the Lord and put it in the cart and put the articles of gold, which you will return to them as a guilt offering in a box by its side, then send it away that it may go. Watch if it goes up by the way of its own country toward Israel, that would be Beth Shemesh, then he has done this, us this great evil. They will know that God has judged them. But if not, then we'll know that it was not his hand, God's hand, that struck us. It happened to us by chance. What's going on here? They're trying to determine whether ark and the way they dealt with the things of God had brought judgment upon them, or was it just an accidental thing that in their cities they had plagues and they were dying, and they said, we'll know for sure. We'll put this ark, this holy thing in a cart, and we'll get Two cows that have just calved, they're feeding their calves, will take the cows away from their calves, will hitch them on the, on the cart to pull the cart toward Israel. And these cows had never been broken before, never had a yoke. And if they go on toward Israel, the Philistines knew this wasn't a chance thing that judgment came on them because the ark 
was to be headed back home. And anybody who knows anything about cattle, and I know about that much, those cows would have turned around and go back to their newborn calves. You couldn't have stopped them. But what did they do? They headed right for Beth Shemesh, right in the country of Israel. They headed back home with the ark, and the Bible says in verses I'll not read, they went back home lowing, lowing loudly, taking the ark back to God's people. And then God's people didn't handle it properly there, and 70 of them died when they said, let me look inside, see the Ten Commandments still there. Bang! A holy thing. And then the ark became a hot potato. You know, what are we going to do with it? See, they had co-opted the power of God. They wanted the power of God to be used for their pagan purposes. And those Philistines, they had pagan gods to everything. Galatians chapter 5 says that they're idols to everything, every existing thing, the sun, the moon, the stars, the crops. In fact, Dagon was a corn god. Would you believe that? A god of their harvest. They said, well, we, they, he defeated Dagon, all of our gods. They had a god to everything. And now they said, we've got, now got the god of Israel. But you see, ladies and gentlemen, you never have, you never control the power of God. God is, in one way, capricious. You can't predict him. You can't program him. You can't say, this is how he is going to work. This is how he is going to act. And let me say something. If someone would come to Christ, you say, I want to be a Christian. You see, these pagans were pragmatists. We got all these gods and goddesses. Now we have Yahweh, the God of Israel. We're getting more in our power structure. We've got all this power. They were pragmatists. They wanted to use God for their purposes. They co-opted him. Let me say something. If you become a Christian... Because there is healing in Christianity, and there is. That's not a good enough motive to come. If you become a Christian because there's excitement in Christ, that's not enough motive to come. There is excitement. But that's not motive enough to come and become, receive Christ and be a Christian. If you come to be a Christian because it is relationally important to you with people, Certainly it is, but that's not enough of a motive to become a Christian. If you become a Christian, so you know, Christianity is relevant. Christianity is relevant, but that's not motive for you to come and receive Christ. You see, because when we receive Christ and become Christians, we come because of healing, sometimes the Christian life will seem to be punishing. If you come to Christ for the excitement of being a Christian, sometimes the Christian life will seem boring. There's only one reason to be a Christian come to Christ. Not pragmatic reasons, all these good things. They're all true. They're all true. But that's not a reason. The reason we come to Christ is because we worship a God that is real and a God that made himself known in Jesus Christ. He took on human flesh. And there we look at genuine history. We look at on the one true and living God and we come to Christ because in whatever happens, we know we have united ourselves with him who is everlasting, 
who is eternal and who encompasses all truth. So here we are. How do we apprehend the word of God? I'll tell you exactly how we do it. With the presence of God. It is only through the presence of God do we have then the power of God. We try to use the power of God as did the Israelis, as did the Philistines, without having the presence of God. It never does work. It never does work. Well, we ask the question then, how do we get in the presence of God? How do we know when the presence of God? There are always two or three things present and are connected with the very presence of God. First of all, unconditional commitment. You can't go in the presence of God without selling out to God, about giving him your hands, your feet, your mind, everything. You can't hold back anything. That's the first step to knowing the presence of God. Remember, it is through the presence of God we then have the power of God. So we go to him totally. We give ourselves totally to him, completely to him, holding nothing back from him. Let me tell you something. If you have something you're talking to God about, praying to God about, and there is living sin in your life or in my life, we're practicing sin in any way, shape, form, and fashion. You're wasting your breath trying to talk to God and get his power to God to operate in some area. You have to, first of all, deal with that brokenness, that sin in your life. That's what total commitment is. Lord, I want you to help. I want you to lead. I want you to forgive. Oh, no, no. Go right back to that thing which is wrong in your life. That has to be dealt with first. For what had happened a long time ago, doesn't matter. Give it to God. Let him deal with it. That has to be dealt with first. And that is a total commitment. If you draw near to God and God draws near to us, we have to begin with surrender and commitment. Not one time, but I'm sure many times. First thing I do every morning, I hit my knees and I surrender every single day. Before I go to bed at night, I hit my knees, I surrender. That is total commitment. That's the first step to drawing near to God James says, draw near to God, and what? He'll draw near to you. It's available. The first step is complete surrender. The second step, have to destroy some idols. It may be a good thing. Your idol may be work. That's a good thing. But if it has higher priority than things of God, a good thing can become a bad thing. What is that you must have? What is the audience that you're living for? Who are those that we want to approve of us? They can become idolatrous. Anything, a house, money, positions, uh, pleasure, sex can become an idol. And it takes the place of God. So first of all, we have to tear down those idols in order to draw near to God and God to draw near to us. Complete surrender, then there's destruction of idols. And then what comes into play? The mercy seat. We have the idea, well, I can go and pray to God any time. Oh, he's omnipresent. He is, but you and I can't pray any time because I'm unclean and you're unclean. And we go to God and God is holy 
And God will listen to only people who are holy. Ooh, you say, boy, I'll never, he'll never listen to me. Let me tell you how holiness comes to every single one of us here. We go right back to the ark. The reason God would come to the ark and withdraw from the ark and use power in the ark and there was glory in the ark and he would speak through the ark because the ark tells us exactly how we get right with God. What happened? Once a year, the high priest would go into the holy of holies, court of the women, court of the Gentiles in the temple, the holy place, then the holy of holies, and there was the ark. Remember what was in the ark, the Ten Commandments. What was on top of the ark, the two cherubim. What was between them, the mercy seat. What would the priest have to do when he went into the holy place? He couldn't go in and have himself. He was not holy, but he went in with a blood sacrifice and the blood was put on the mercy seat. Why? Why? Is this some antique, old, ancient riddle and ritual? Oh, no. You see, the commandments were there. The Ten Commandments were there. And when we go before God, there's always that covenant, the Ark of the Covenant. There's those commandments. And every one of us here has broken every single one of those commandments. If you doubt that, we'll debate after church. Every one of us has broken every one of the commandments. So we go to God and we know there is the covenant that we've broken. Therefore, there has to be the blood that covers that covenant so we can do business with God. And so we go as holy, you and I, we're holy when we've been there and the blood of Jesus Christ has been applied. You're holy and I'm holy and God can deal with us and we can deal with God. He can come near to us and we come near to him and then his power begins to flow in our life because his power is always connected with his presence. How do we get in his presence? Total submission. How does that happen? We get rid of some idols. Then we have to go to the mercy seat because you and I then become holy because Jesus, who was holy, has shed the blood and protects us. And he is there as our mediator between us and the covenant that every one of us has broken. Well, before we leave you today, Dr. Young is here to answer a couple of questions coming out of the message we've just heard. Dr. Young, let me ask you, what are some good ways to go about recognizing the idols stopping us from fully understanding God's power and presence in our lives? And do you have any practical advice for listeners trying to break down those idols? An idol can be anything, anything we put ahead of God, anything we put ahead of our relationship with Christ becomes an idol. It can be a wife or a husband. It can be our children or our grandchildren. It can be our vocation. It, should be, it could be popularity. It could be any number of things. If Jesus Christ is not number one in every agenda, in every posture, in every situation, whatever is number one becomes an idol. And so how do you know? You just ask God. Seek your own heart and your own mind. Say, Lord, am I putting anybody, am I putting anything ahead of you? Whatever that is, push it to one side. It may be something that is good, but following the Lord Jesus Christ, putting him number one is always better. You say, well, this is a good thing. You know, that. no, no, no. Put him number one and all the good will take care of itself. He will let you know if you ask him anything that you're putting ahead of him. 
And when you discover that person or that thing, you give it to him, put him back on the throne of your life. Let me tell you something. With Jesus on the throne of your life, with Jesus on the throne of my life, with Jesus as Lord of your life, with Jesus as Lord of my life, what does that mean? He calls the shots. He's a commanding general. We run by everything through him. Make him number one. Take down all those flimsy idols. They'll not work effectively in this life, and they certainly will block you or me from the joy of living for Christ in eternity. Thanks, Dr. Young. You've been listening to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Winning Walk is a listener-supported ministry. Your prayers and financial support allow us to bring proven truth to listeners around the world. Connect with us at winningwalk.org. That's winningwalk.org.